May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you to open your Bible, if you have it, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And if you do not have the Bible with you, the sermon text we will use today is also printed in your worship order. And so I invite you to look for it there. We've been in a series of the Gospel of John. We are looking at Jesus, the Word made flesh for the light of the world. And we come today to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy Word. And as you stand, please open your hearts and minds to receive the Word of God. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, Amen. you may be seated. Now before we jump into the sermon today, I want to reset the stage for you. Remember that this story is taking place in Jerusalem at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that means that it's taking place in a holy city 
at a holy place during a holy celebration. Last week we saw that on the last and great day of the festival, when water offerings were being poured out on the altar and the Hallel hymns were being sung, Jesus stood up and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as usual, we saw a mixed response to Jesus' words. Some people were angry with him, and others were looking for a way to arrest him, and still some wanted to kill him. Others were simply indifferent and just went about business as usual, arguing and debating their politics, religion, and sports with one another. But there was a mixed response to Jesus. In the story we, re we just read today, this story takes place at the end of that last and great day of the festival. And so it's towards evening of the last and great day. And Jesus once again stands up and he begins to teach, this time at a place called the treasury. Now the treasury was basically a row of boxes for the tithes and the offerings of the people. And each box had a trumpet-shaped thing on top of it where the people could deposit their offerings. It was located at a corner of the temple between the court of women and the beautiful gate. Now all of this is significant because at the end of that day, when evening came, the Levites would come and the priests and the musicians would process from the inner court of the temple and they would go past the altar and down the steps near the Nicanor Gate, 15 steps, and as they went, they would be singing and they would enter into the outer court, which was the court of women. And as they made their way to this part of the temple complex, they would sing from the book of Psalms. Now it's in the court of women where there were four large columns that served as lampposts. Each one was about 70 feet tall. We learn from Jewish writings that these were great lamps of gold lifted up and set atop them were the fiery lamps, four golden bowls on the top of each lamp. Four young priests were sent to climb up and down to the top of those posts to make sure that they had enough oil and enough wick to keep the fire burning. And once lighted, there was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that, that did not glow with the light that emanated from the lamps on the top of those columns. As the people sang, the righteous and the pious men would then dance before the crowds and they would juggle flaming torches. Levites standing on the 15 steps that descended from the court of Israel down to the women's court would be playing on their musical instruments and they would be singing. And all of this festivity was done to honor the ritual of pouring out water on the last and great day of the feast. Now what's interesting about all of this is that the last Hallel hymn that was sung, the last psalm that was sang that day, was Psalm 118. And the end of that psalm says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. It was in that context, against that backdrop, on the evening of the last and great day of the festival, that Jesus stood in the treasury 
and he cried out in the courtyard next to the giant lamps. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now to the Pharisees, this must have sounded crazy. I imagine it sounded something like, well, here's what they heard, I am the great and powerful Oz, or something like that. They've already said that he has a devil, and now they think he must just be insane. But I want you to know that Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is consistent with everything that we've been hearing about Jesus from the beginning of John's Gospel until now. Let me remind you of a few things that were already stated in John chapter 1. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Then later, after his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus points out that this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, this is not new revelation. Not for the reader of the Gospel of John. We've been expecting him to unveil this truth and reality at some point. What I want you to notice in the story is that the mere presence of Jesus made people feel uncomfortable. The mere presence of Jesus among them made them feel like they were being judged. Have you ever had a friend like that? Like the friend is so good. He never does anything wrong. And just when they're around, you feel like they're judging you, even if they're not. You just feel a critique coming from them. Something is being exposed in your life. People feel that way around ministers at times, but ministers would be the first to tell you uh, we actually feel judged by you because we know how frail and weak we are. Well, Jesus' mere presence among these people made them feel like they were being judged. It's interesting in the story that Jesus makes it clear that he came as a witness, not as a judge. Although there was plenty to judge, he just says, I'm here as a, as a witness. Now I want you to be careful to understand what witness means here. It's not just that he came as an eyewitness who tells something he saw after the fact. He's actually coming as a live witness to tell what he is seeing right here, right now. And so on one hand, he comes as a witness to the Father, and he's telling people what he knows to be true about his Father, something they can't possibly know. But on the other hand, he is coming as a witness against the people. So he's telling the Father what he sees in them. 
It is written in the prophets, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. You can see a fulfillment of this in the life of Jesus in this story. So like a prophet, Jesus comes to gather evidence and to present His case to the Father against the people. Like a covenant prosecutor, he, is, he has come and He is shining a bright spotlight into the hearts and minds of the Pharisees and of the people, and He is exposing their sin and their darkness for what it is. Just listen to the accusations and the charges Jesus makes against this crowd. All of this comes from his time at the temple, at the festival of the tabernacles. These are things he says to this crowd. None of you keeps the law of Moses. How do you know? You're trying to kill me. He who sent me is true and you do not know him. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. You do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am from heaven. You will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now from where you're sitting, these don't seem like very serious charges, do they? He didn't mention anything about adultery, anything about lying, anything about having other gods, and yet all of that is implied for these people are breaking God's law. They are living in disobedience. Now, I told you earlier that Jesus said these things at the treasury, which was located in a corner of the temple between the court of women and the beautiful gates. And what you heard was, wah, 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 right? But what I didn't tell you is this, is that the name of that corner happened to be called the Woodshed Court. What is Jesus doing in this story? In this story, He is literally and figuratively, figuratively taking the Jews to the woodshed. And He is letting them have it. He is pointing to their stone-cold hearts. And He is telling them straight up, You are lawbreakers. You are death eaters. You don't know God. You don't know the Son. You are not able to come to heaven. You are lost and you are dead in your sins. Jesus is a witness against the people. And he sees all these sinful things in their hearts and in their lives. And these are in the hearts and lives of deeply religious people. Now you may or may not know this, but just in case, I want to point out to you that no one hides sin better than religious people hide sin. 
We are experts at hiding sin. We have all been trained to mask and bury our sins. And yet here, Jesus comes shining light into dark places and exposing deeply hidden secrets. Now, if you'd been among those people and had a conscience at all, or been sensitive to the things of God, or tender in any way, you would have been squirming in your robe over what Jesus just said. Notice that with so much on the line, Jesus does not take the time to pussyfoot around. With so much at stake, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he can't afford to walk on eggshells. And so he takes them to the woodshed, and like a watchman for the house of Israel, Jesus speaks what the Father sent him to speak. And he gives them fair warning, fair warning to a people who are lost in their sins. Why? He makes it clear it's not because he wants to judge them, but it, he wants to save their life. That's what a watchman does. A watchman is sent by God to warn people about their sin, to tell them where they've gone wrong, and to call them to repentance and call them to change and to come back to the Father. That's what a good watchman does. A faithful watchman is sent out to warn people about danger, but to call them back to safety. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He comes as the light of the world and He's able to see through their religious exterior wall and He looks into the dark interior secret chambers of their hearts. He looks into ours as well. And He does what Ezekiel the prophet was able to do when God called him up to the temple. In that story, God showed Ezekiel all the detestable idols and the abominable images that were set up in the hearts of the leaders of the people. The prophets saw what they were doing in secret. He saw why judgment was coming upon the nation. Likewise, in this story, Jesus sees the disobedience, the disbelief, the disorientation, the deceit, and the destruction that is taking place in the hearts and lives of His people. And He calls them to the light out of darkness. I want to suggest to you that He's doing the same for us now. Whatever it is we're trying to hide, whatever it is we're trying to mask or bury, whatever we think we're getting away with, you've got to know that the light of the world who searches hearts and minds sees that. And he's calling you from darkness into light. The other thing I notice about this, I hope you see it as well, is that there is nothing seeker-sensitive or culturally relevant about Jesus' message. In other words, when you, when you hear Jesus teach and preach at the temple, He is not a man out to win friends and influence people. That's not what He's trying to do. Jesus is simply there as a witness for the Father against the people. He is the light of the world shining into a dark place, but trying to call people out of darkness into light. And while his message might not be seeker-sensitive or culturally relevant, I do want to point out to you that it is extremely user-friendly. It is timely and it is practical, but only for those who feel moved to turn away from darkness and to trust in the light. How do the people respond to the bright light of Jesus' teaching shining into their life and exposing their sins? 
Well, as always, there's a mixed response. But notice that many responded in a way that we probably don't expect them to respond. John says that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, if you're like me, that is not at all the response you expect after hearing a hard word from the Lord. If you're like me, you've been conditioned to expect a different kind of response, one like anger, conflict, frustration. That's usually the way people respond when they hear a hard and pointed message from the Lord. It's rare that we see the response of, they heard a hard word from the Lord and many believed in Him. But what does this go to show? It goes to show that God's ways are not our ways. It also goes to show that experts don't always know what they're talking about. Some of us in this room have been to seminary and we've encountered in our readings and exposure to different things this notion that we should be nice and friendly and cozy to people. We don't want to rub them the wrong way. We've got churches to grow after all. We've got to have people show up and fill the seats, right? And you see, Jesus is not concerned about that at all. Our ways are not God's ways. The other thing we see in this is that God's Word never returns empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And in this case, it was sent to draw many to believe in Jesus. Now this is not the first time in John's Gospel that we see many people believing in Jesus. There are at least three other occasions. For example, after Jesus cleansed the temple, John tells us in chapter 2 that many believed in Him because of the signs they saw. And when He went to Samaria and He's out among non-Jewish people preaching and teaching, many believed in Him because of His words. And when he showed up at the Feast of Tabernacles just a few days earlier than this event, many believed in him. And so in his public ministry, we've seen on various occasions many people turn away from him, but we've also seen many people turn towards him and trust in him. Now if you're like me, if you have sort of an Eeyore personality like I do, then when you read the Gospel of John, the thing that you probably see more often than not is look at all the many people who are leaving Jesus. That's the thing I've focused on until this week, seeing this story. It's easier to focus on those who leave than on those who stay. And yet, on that dark night, at the end of the festival, when the lamps go up, many believed in Jesus. Now, let me give a word of warning here, a caution. While we want to grant the benefit of doubt to all who claim to believe in Jesus, we must not be too hasty in declaring all of them to be true believers. Then, as well as now, it's hard to tell if someone is truly, madly, deeply believing in Jesus or if they are simply superficially believing in Jesus. So can I chase a rabbit here for a moment and tell you that there is a profound difference between mere external belief in Jesus and deep internal belief in Him. One kind of belief is just a knee-jerk response to the flesh. The other is a 
renewing work of the Holy Spirit. The thing I want you to know is that not all conversions are true conversions. Many conversions that we see happening around us happen at camp, they happen on a campaign, they happen during a crusade, and many of them are false conversions. Some are true conversions, by the way, but many are false. People who attend such events tend to get caught up in the moment of the event and they make a decision or they pray a prayer or they get baptized in the heat of the moment. And if all we had was that one still frame moment of their life, we might say, well, it looks like they really and truly believed. But it's not that one still frame that we look at, is it? What we need to look at is the ongoing film of all of the moments after that moment. Those are the ones who show whether they truly believed in Jesus from the heart or not. In other words, even though we see here many believed in Him, only time will tell if they believed in Jesus truly or falsely. For now, all we know about them is that at the end of a long and hard week at the temple, many believed in Jesus. But after Jesus tests them and tries them a little bit more, then we're going to know whether they were true believers or false believers. But until then, let's just wait and see what happens until next week. Now let's get back to our story and try to tie our story into this story. Jesus declared, I am the light of the world, which is another way of echoing what the Scripture said. I am the Lord God who makes His light shine upon you. <coughs> now we have heard things like this so much that we no longer feel the weight or the impact of its glory. As professing Christians, it's likely that these things don't shock us at all. And that's tragic because they should shock and surprise us. Try to put yourselves into the sandals of those who were standing near Jesus. His disciples have watched people come and go. They've listened to people threaten their master. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. People have turned against him. Some are drawing near. There's sort of chaos in this congregation that is forming around Jesus. You don't really know who's going to do what. But you're standing next to Jesus, and what if all of a sudden, just when you think it's all over and it's safe and this festival is about to end and we're going to clear out of Jerusalem and get back to safer turf, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What if all of a sudden all of the eyes in the temple are upon Jesus and upon you who have said that He is the Christ, the Holy One of God, that He has the words of eternal life? Now your confession is on the line, isn't it? What if your fate was tied to the fate of Jesus? Now it's, re it's easy for us, I realize it's easy for us to sit up here in the cheap seats from 2,000 years away and watch the story unfold from a distance. But it's when we enter into that story ourselves that we begin to feel what it's like to have 
the light of the world shine upon us, to have someone shine a light into our hearts and expose our sins? What if you were in that crowd and Jesus began to point out what you've done and your secrets and what you're hiding? How would that make you feel? It would be unnerving, wouldn't it? How could this man who is a stranger to me, he's only been around a few days at the festival, how could he possibly know these deep things about me? How would you feel if someone came with a bright light into your life and shone it into your hearts? What idols would they find hidden there in the darkness? What images would they see flickering in the shadows? What if Jesus came to our congregation, to our temple, into our life? What icons would He find in our courts, in our hearts? What images would He see posted in our rooms and on our smartphones or in our minds? What are the idols that He would find in our history, in our personal stories? We might have the privilege and advantage of saying, well, we're not like the Jews at the temple and we would never act like they did. But let me point out to you that they would say to us, well, we're not like you American Christians either. They were susceptible to their own temptations and weaknesses, but we are susceptible to a variety of American idolatries. We are just as affected by the imaginations of our hearts as people outside the church, out in the culture are. And here's just one of many that I could point to, one that seems to be striking closer and closer to our families, to our sons, to our generation. We live in an image-rich, eye-serving, sexually explicit context. It doesn't take much imagination for us to see that everything is either pornographic or pornified or pornocentric or on its way to becoming some kind of pornography. And it's my fear as a Christian, as a pastor, that our zeal for the house of God, our passion and our desire for the holiness and the righteousness of God is dimming and fading. Collectively, yes. Individually, yes. Personally, yes. And I say that because we seem to be so apathetic and carefree about these things. Far more than Jesus was. Far more tolerant and accepting of loving the world and the things in the world than Jesus was. And I mean tolerant in ourselves and in others. Why is that? We seem to be drawn and attracted to the darkness, lured by it, seduced by it. We seem to be afraid of the light and even ashamed of coming into the light. Why is that? Is it because the darkness is more interesting and more thrilling to our flesh than the light is to our spirit? Is it because dwelling in the darkness feels like life, but walking in the light feels like death? And yet Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Coming into the light ought to feel like death to your flesh. But it ought to feel like life to your spirit. 
And fleeing the light, running away from the light, ought to feel like death to you, not life. For it is death. And yet Jesus says that He is the true light who gives life to all men. He knows our works. He knows our love. He knows our faith. He knows our service. He knows our patient endurance. But you know what else He knows? He knows our weaknesses. He knows our lusts, our failings, our secrets. He knows our patterns of life. How does He know this? He is the light of the world, and He searches the mind and the heart to give to each one according to our deeds. You know what that means? It means that He gives us what we want. What a terrible and beautiful thought. He gives us what we want, and He lets us live and die with the consequences. In other words, He doesn't come as a judge. He comes as a witness. In the 16th century, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. And that is so true. But in the 21st century, we need to change that a bit. And we want to say that the human heart is also a search engine. Ever searching, but never finding what it's looking for. Ever searching, but never really discovering what it truly needs. Ever searching, but never making a strong connection. Ever searching, but never being satisfied. So remember this, next time you channel surf, next time you perform a search on Google or Instagram, Snapchat, remember this the next time you're at the mall gazing at people and the things around you, that you are not alone in your search. And you are not the only one searching. The light of the world is searching your desires, your motives, your thoughts, and your feelings. The light of the world is searching your life. Why? To show you your sin, to scatter your darkness, and to save your life. Now, it is possible that, like the crowd, some of you do not fully understand all of these things. It's a long story, a lot of moving parts, a lot going on here. And that's okay if you don't get it all. I'm not sure I get it all, and I'm the one preaching it. But I do want to say this to give you some hope. Echoing what Jesus said to those who did not understand Him when He taught these things, Here's the key, here's the clue to understanding all of life. Here's the clue to understanding Jesus and the gospel. Perhaps even the clue to understanding yourself. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, when you have lifted up the Word of flesh, the Word made flesh, the way you've lifted up those blazing lamps on those columns. The darkness will be scattered and your heart and mind will be illuminated. When Jesus is lifted up in your heart like a sacrifice on the cross and lifted up like a Savior from the grave and lifted up 
like a sovereign Lord into heaven. And when Jesus is lifted up like radiant glory in your life, then you will understand, then you will know, then you will see that I am. In other words, when Jesus is lifted up, then you will know that He is Yahweh, the self-existent God of Moses, the one who appears in the burning bush, but the bush does not burn. The true and living God who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that He is the promise maker and the promise keeper. When Jesus is lifted up before your eyes, then you will know the truth about who He is. Jesus wants you to know that the cross makes all things clear and the cross puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? So on this evening of the last and great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up in front of His people as a pillar of fire and says to the people who are walking in darkness, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. And He says the same thing to us now. Let us fear the Lord and obey the voice of His servants. Let us turn from darkness and walk in the light, trusting in the name of Jesus and relying on our God.